the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, monsters protest evil label, claim to be differently good at eating your face. Ten rockets and jangly pockets. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Our own David F. Sherrod interviews Larry Correa, Brian Thomas Schmidt, Faith Hunter, and Jody Lynn Nye editors and authors of a great new anthology of stories set in Larry Correa's Monster Hunter universe. The book is called The Monster Hunter Files, and it's now at booksellers everywhere. So stand by for that. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of the Aiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Lo what? Aktong, baby! The October mass markets have arrived. Out now at booksellers are a pair of beauties. First is Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold. This is a completely new entry in Bujold's legendary Vorkosigan saga. Three years after her famous husband's death, Cordelia Vorkosigan, widowed vice-reign of Sergyar, stands ready to spin her life in a new direction. Oliver Jold, Admiral Sergyar Fleet, finds himself caught up in her web of plans in ways he'd never imagined, bringing him to an unexpected crossroads in his career. Meanwhile, Miles Forkosigan, one of Emperor Gregor's key investigators, this time dispatches himself on a mission of inquiry into a mystery he never anticipated, his own mama. Plans, wills, and expectations collide in this sparkling science fiction social comedy as the impact of galactic technology changes all the old rules and Miles learns that not only is the future not what he expects, neither is the past. Also out now is Castaway Planet by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr. It's the worst case scenario. Sergeant Samuel Morgan Campbell has been in plenty of tight spots before, but nothing like this. It had happened in a few terrifying seconds. The starship he and his crew traveled on, the outward initiative shattered to pieces before their eyes and disappeared, leaving them stranded in the endless night of deep space on lifeboat LS-88, all systems dead, light years from any known colony. Somehow, Sergeant Campbell and his crew of half-trained children, ranging from freshly graduated Xander Bird down to eight-year-old Francisco, have to repair systems with no tools, navigate with no computers, and if they could find a planet they could live on, land a shuttle whose controls were more than half destroyed. And if they manage all of that, then the real challenge begins. The only planet in range has secrets that even Sergeant Campbell cannot imagine. Mass Market Paperbacks Gentlemen Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold and Castaway Planet by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr are now booksellers everywhere. By the way, this means that the ebook price drops too. In case you hadn't noticed, ebook prices can and do vary depending on what format the print book is in. So get in on these deals now.
Hi everybody, it's David F. Shirod, and I am here with the co-editors and some of the contributors to the brand new anthology, The Monster Hunter Files. This is story set in Larry Correa's best-selling Monster Hunter International series. Uh, joining me today is the creator of the Monster Hunter International series. Uh, he is a co-editor of this anthology, and he also has a short story uh, that kicks it off. Is Mr. Larry Correa. He's the New York Times best-selling author of, of course, Monster Hunter International, The Grim Noir Chronicles, The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, The Dead Six Thrillers with Mike Coopery, and Adventures of Tom Strange, Interdimensional Insurance Agent. Uh, of course, also novels in the War Machine universe and a whole lot of short fiction. Uh, before becoming an author, he was an accountant, a gun dealer, and a firearms instructor, but any similarities between his resume and Owen Pitts is purely coincidental. Larry, thanks so much for coming on to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah, it would not really be the same without you here uh, today. Um, also joining us is Faith Hunter. She is the New, uh, New York Times bestselling fantasy author. She writes two contemporary urban fantasy series, the Soulwood series featuring Earth Magic user Nell Ingram, and the Jane Yellowrock series featuring a Cherokee skinwalker who hunts rogue vampires. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Her uh, rogue mage novels are a dark post-apocalyptic fantasy series featuring Thorn St. Croix, a stone mage, and the role-playing game based on the series is Rogue Mage RPG. Faith Hunter, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Also, uh, back on the Bane Free Radio Hour is Jody Lynn Nye. She lists her main career activity as Spoiling Cats, but you probably know her as the author of over 50 books, including The Ship Who Won with Anne McCaffrey, eight books with Robert Asprin, a humorous anthology about mothers uh, called Don't Forget Your Spacesuit, Dear, and uh, over 140 short stories and counting. Her latest books are Rhythm of the Imperium, uh, From Bane, Wishing on a Star, and Mythfits, the 20th novel in the Myth Adventures series begun by Robert Asprin, uh, as well as the YA science fiction novel Moonbeam with Travis S. Taylor, which is out now from Bane. She also reviews fiction for Galaxy's Edge magazine and teaches the intensive writer's workshop at DragonCon. Jody, thanks so much. It's great to talk to you again. Happy to be back. Thank you. And we also have uh, the co-editor of Monster Hunter Files, and as well as, again, a contributor, Mr. Brian Thomas Schmidt. He is an author and Hugo-nominated editor of adult and children's speculative fiction. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received honorable mention on Barnes & Noble Book Club's year's best science fiction releases. His short stories include entries in The X-Files, Predator, uh, and deciphers wars among others for bane he has edited or co-edited uh, little green men attack shattered shields mission tomorrow galactic games and now of course the monster monster hunter files brian good to talk with you again thanks for having me again all right well larry and brian i want to kick it off with you guys with your editor hats on and then we'll talk to faith and jody about their stories and then maybe close out with you guys talking about the stories you wrote for the anthology. But this is the Monster Hunter Files. This is uh, stories in Larry's Monster Hunter universe, which I think we're on uh, book six now, Monster Hunter Siege. And then we also have the 
the uh, kind of companion series, Monster Hunter Memoirs, which Larry wrote with John Ringo. But this explores even more nooks and crannies of the Monster Hunter universe. Larry, just uh, for those of those five people who are listening to this who do not know about the Monster Hunter International series, why don't you just give us a short intro about what it's all about? Um, the way I describe it usually when I'm on here is um, it's uh, kind of think X-Files meets the Expendables. It's a group of military contractors that handle monster problems. Um, the series started with Monster Hunter International back in 2009, and it's kind of blown up since then. It's been really popular. Uh, just kind of big action adventure, pulpy fun, monster killing for fun and profit, but it's kind of grown and um, a lot of aspects of the world, and so we had a chance to open it up to other people. Um, the idea uh, for the anthology was actually uh, Brian's idea. Brian approached me about it. It was a great idea, so we went to Tony Weisskopf, and we said, hey, you know, Got a lot of people that really like the Monster Hunter universe, a lot of writers that are fans. Um, want to do an anthology and open it up to other people to play in the universe. And uh, it, it uh, was a lot of fun. We got a ton of really good authors kicking in stories from all over the universe, all over the Monster Hunter universe. And I think it came out really, really good. And uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, Brian, uh, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? This, so this, this actually originated with you, is that right? It did, but you know, I'll, be, I'll confess, I wanted to write a Monster Hunter story in that universe, so I figured I'd just talk Larry into doing an anthology so I could do it. <laughs> and it worked. It really it worked. I was, I was a fan of the series, and I really liked the voice uh, he uses with the open uh, pit character, which, despite his claims otherwise, is kind of a Mary Sue in a lot of ways. But nonetheless, is. Uh, uh, a really beloved fun character, and I really enjoy the humor um, in the series because I like a lot of humor and, and humorous banter and stuff in mind. The clever way that he uses, uh, twists the tropes of the monsters and things and all of that, and I knew there were a lot of people out there that were fans that would enjoy playing the universe. I also happen to know that Bane likes to do that with anthology series with their various universes. And so I just thought it was a good opportunity for me to work with Larry, who I'd heard a lot of good things about, and to get to play in one of my favorite universes. So I just thought, what the hell, I'll throw it out there and see what happens. And here we are. Yeah, and I like the way it's set up, um, is that this is sort of the... um there's a little intro by Albert Lee, Monster Hunter International's archivist. Uh, so these are all purportedly true tales. Um, and, you know, in a lot of anthologies, you'll have that little italicized intro to each story. But these are actually written in character uh, as though this were from, from the archives. Whose idea was that? Where did that come from? That's uh, that was me. I, yeah, I, I, I thought it would be kind of fun to do this. Um, well, we set it up that the, that and part of MHI's history is that they collect monster hunter stories whenever possible from around the world. And, uh, in the series, I introduced the fact that they've been neglecting this for a long time. And so they got a guy who specifically, that's what he was into. And so there's a character who I've not been able to do a whole lot with, and he's a great character. So I thought, what the heck, I was just going to set all these up like they were from the archivist. They were from the, the guy who's running MHI's files now and, as just kind of a collection that he put together uh, of stories that he thought were interesting. And some of them were more dubious origins than others. And so he would just, you know, reference that at the beginning. This might not be accurate, but hey, what the heck. Um, 
And other ones, uh, you know, this is from a redacted secret agency. We don't know if this is true, but if it is, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of fun to, to, to do that with Albert. Uh, he's a fun character. It makes it more fun for the fans in a lot of ways, too, because um, it adds a, kind of an element of mystery to it. Um, and it also leaves a lot of leeway if there's something Larry wants to do later that conflicts with anything. He can, especially in the stories that are more dubious, he can kind of just, he can, he can do twists and stuff if he wants to. Well, they, so, they should be pretty good, know, but if I screwed up and missed something, that way <laughs> I have a... I have a backdoor way out if I screwed something up. <laughs> well, there you go. So cover, he covered his butt, which is always smart. So there you go. <laughs> uh, Larry, I saw you on a tour here in Austin. Um, I actually didn't end up getting to say hi. Uh, but you told some stories about um, how people, uh, how you assigned or how people called what what corner of the Monster Hunter universe they were going to tackle. Uh, could you maybe talk about that a little bit? How did, um, you know, Jonathan Mayberry writes about Agent Franks, who I think is, you know, kind of a lot of people would want to jump on that. Did you assign that to him or did he say, I call Franks, you know, uh, and how did that work? Well, so what it is, is, we started out, we made our list of all the authors we would like to invite. And it was kind of a list of people that we knew um, or, or we suspected had already read the series um, our writers that we knew were talented. So we made up a big list, and we uh, sent out invites. And then the idea was that if they were interested, they would come back and they'd pitch it to us um, what they'd want to write. And I was just kind of keeping tabs on it to make sure nobody stepped on each other's toes. But the fun thing was people kind of came uh, came into it from all sorts of different directions. Um, like you mentioned, Jonathan Mayberry wrote Frank's. So that was kind of a no-brainer because me and uh, Jonathan actually collaborated on an Agent Frank story last year. Uh, which was a lot of fun. and So that was one that I was really glad about. But um, we had some people came in and did did unique things, uh, like Jessica Day George um, is best known. For, she's a New York Times bestseller, but she's best known for writing Magic Princess Adventure stuff. But Jessica came in and she's like, I want Trailer Park Elves! And I was like, all right. Um, it was kind of fun. But, like, uh, but then, like, Jody, Jody had, like, a really unique idea. And what she pitched was, not something I would have thought of at all. I'm sure she'll talk about hers in a minute, but it was really unique. And it was an area of the universe that I had not given any thought to. And I was like, okay, that's really cool. Uh, and then um, some people did existing characters. Um, like Maurice Broaddus wrote about Trip. Uh, Trip Jones is a really popular character in the series. Other people wrote about new characters. Like Quincy, if we get him on, he wrote an origin story for a couple kids. He's really good. But then like Faith, what she does really neat is she actually did a crossover story with one of her existing universes is what she pitched. And uh, I'm sure she'll talk about that here in a minute, but it was really cool. It was kind of fun to to kind of cross borders a little bit with another uh, really good urban fantasy universe. So we had all sorts of stuff, and it's funny because no one really stepped on each other's toes. Everybody kind of had an area that they thought was really cool, and um, it went from there. It was it was actually a pretty neat process. Yeah, we yeah, really got we got. We got more than one person writing about like Franks or something, you know. But we didn't really end up having to say two stories are too similar and or anything at all. You know, you, that could easily happen in this kind of case. I'm really lucky with that. Um, and then, you know, when I came up with my story, it was because we hadn't done a lot with Owen, and I wanted to come up with. I wanted to do so, two things. I had always wanted Larry to write a story from the monster point of view. And uh, that anthology fell apart. So I thought, I'll do a story from the monster point of view, and we'll put Owen in there as the other point of view character, and get a little bit more Owen into the anthology. So that's kind of where 
uh, I wrote my story last so I could fill in the gap. So um, that way it would feel more well-rounded. So, I mean, it just all kind of fell together that way. Everybody was afraid to write Owen, I think, because it's so much Larry's character to understand that. And I'm not sure how well I, Julie Frost, who I brought in to help me, and I pulled it off, but we, uh, we, should, we gave it our best effort. <laughs> Well, since we've mentioned uh, a couple of these uh, stories, let's uh, segue. And um, Faith, since you come uh, going through the anthology first, I will go with you. Yeah, this was really interesting. This was, as Larry said, a crossover with your um, Jane Yellow Rock series. And I and I love, we talked about those little uh, italicized portions. I love how Larry handled that, where he um, says in his introduction, or Albert Lee's introduction, that uh, for some reason, uh, there's a popular urban fantasy series, uh, a fictionalized version of this this person we've really worked with. I thought that was clever. Um, so tell us, uh, again, the listeners maybe who aren't as familiar with Jane Yellowrock, um, who she is and uh, how y- you brought her into the Monster Hunter world. Well, in her own world, Jane is a, a monster hunter herself. She's uh, an independent contractor. Her slogan is, have stakes, will travel. And um, she, her, her main job is to track down rogue, rogue creatures who have stepped outside of any form of accepted behavior and begun to hurt humans. Um, and I chose werewolves as, my, as my, my bad monster to hunt because in both, in both universes, werewolves are, are, are the insane most insane, most horrifying, because they're shapeshifters and it's contagious. So I thought that would be a lot of fun to, to pull the two together. And I, uh, I, I got the Appalachians, which I adore. It's my favorite part of the country. So I was able to bring in um, two really great monster hunters that I got to sort of make up, and then a really bad hiding he's not quite all... He's not admitting his past, Monster Hunter, who is mentioned once or twice in Jane's world, but is never, ever shown. So he was sort of nomad, was sort of my my uh, pull-everybody-together character. And uh, I really appreciate being able to do this because I love the idea of Jane as a have-stakes-will-travel in the Monster Hunter universe. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm trying to think. You you did that so succinctly. I want to talk to you more about it, but I don't know what else to say. Um, so, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> well, how about, how about my favorite line from the story? Perfect. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> my favorite line from the story was, um, uh, "Skinwalkers live long; they seldom prosper," which was my homage <laughs> to Star Trek. <laughs> yes, I like that as well. Don't try this at home, David. So when when so did Brian approach you about this uh, to write a story, or how did you uh, get involved with this initially? Yes, Brian Brian contacted me and said um, we'd like to do it, and I said, "Well, do you want a Jane story?" And he said, "Love to have a Jane story." And then came the complications of Jane doesn't quite fit in exactly because. In, in, the, in, in some aspects, Jane's a monster herself, um, but she's one of a kind. She's a, she's a, a singularity in terms of 
her own world. So in that respect, um, we were able to, to make it work because there's, there are no other skinwalkers in Jane's world. And the ones, the one that she has met is a true, was a true absolute monster and she had to kill. So that, uh, sort of with, with, with those two things together, we were able to pull it together and make it work. And, and, um, I, I really felt sorry for a certain editor who had to keep saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. <laughs> but but finally he said, yes, you can do this. All right, I think maybe we'll see. That was <laughs> that was the end of the proposal and when it was accepted, so I was delighted. <laughs> well, you know, I've been, want, I've been wanting to get faith in an anthology for a while, and it just never worked out. So I was, I, I'm a big fan of the Skinwalker. You know the Skinwalker series, oh, thank you. Uh, the Jane series, and so I, thank you. I was thrilled that she was able to be part of it. Oh, you're welcome, and you did a great job. Uh, one uh, ask, excuse me, aspect we haven't talked about is um, Jane's companion uh, Bean. Um, did you want to say anything about it, her, him? I don't know. <laughs> the Bean? Oh, Bean! Bean, bean, bean the bean, little, little the. Yeah, Bean, yes, yeah uh, the little critter. Bean is a Grindylo and um, doesn't belong in any world, even doesn't belong in Jane's world. And the question in Jane's world is, where did they come from? But they're, they're beautiful, cute, sweet little kitty cats until a werewolf gets out of line or they find that a werewolf has, um, has attacked humans or tried to spread the wear taint, and then the Grindylo appears, and they are able to move through space and time so that they can appear and mete out justice, and they have steel claws, and they're neon green, and they're terribly cute. Cats don't like me, and as a child, I was always scratched, so <laughs> that's where the Grindylo came from. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you have cat, a cat, beast, cat is... Jane's companion. Yes, Beast is 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 Jane is a two souled creature. She's got a beast inside of her. She accidentally did black magic when she was five years old, and she pulled the soul of a beast inside with her. So that's what makes Jane part of a beast herself, and tries to control all that is um, violent and and uh antisocial within her and sends her to to direct all of that negative energy and and negative attitude to tracking down monsters herself. Yeah, uh Larry or Brian, did you have anything else about um Faith's Hunter Faith Faith's Hunter Faith's Faith's story that you wanted to uh, add as editors or as fans? I, I thought it was a great story. I was really excited to have her on board. Um, uh, Brian knew her better than I did, but I had done some stuff at cons with Faith, and I thought she was really cool. And uh, I've been on a bunch of panels with her over the year at Dragon Con, over the years at Dragon Con and stuff, and just knew her on Facebook and that kind of thing. And I always thought Faith was, like, really super cool. So to get a chance to work with her, for me, was a lot of fun. She was, um, earlier she was telling, you know, she was talking about how she was troublesome to the editors, or like when she was on the panel at Dragon Con, she was talking about how she was the problem child. And I claim it. I, I claim the problem child. <laughs> I, well, that's, 
I'm just rumored. Everyone on this was pretty easy to work with, so the, the bar is fairly low. <laughs> <laughs> well, I jumped across it. <laughs> no, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to work with Faith, and I was really glad that she was uh, able to come on board. That was it, I, I had a good time. I thought it was really cool of her, of her to do it, and it was fun. And also the fun thing about crossover stories, since we're on the Bay Inn podcast, so, Bayon customers, go check out Faith stuff. It's really good. <laughs> you know, that's that's one of the reasons when we do this crossover stuff is so. Well, so that way the fans can like be exposed to other stuff that they're that they're they're not uh, they're not familiar with. That's one of the big perks of doing these anthologies like this. Um, is it's it's just fun crossover and hopefully hopefully because you know there's quite a few Monster Hunter fans. Hopefully, a bunch of Monster Hunter fans will go and check out some of these other guys' work and. There, there, there's some I mean, really good writers in here. That's exactly why right. I, I included Quincy, who uh, was kind of one of the one of the newbies we brought on board, because I had edited Quincy's novels, and he had a very similar sensibility and style to the Monster Hunter thing going on in, in a couple of his novels, and I thought he'd be a really good fit for this, and this will help <laughs> you know some other people books they might like. So I mean, I love doing that with the anthologies. Yeah, it was this Quincy J. Allen? Yeah, who who we'd hope to have on, but I guess uh, had a scheduling conflict, maybe. Um, but actually, when I heard, because I know Quincy from conventions, and he's such a cool guy, and I've read his stuff. And when I saw that he was in here, I go like, "Yeah, that makes sense." Like, yeah, I think he, you know, <laughs> um, uh, is it would be a, is a good fit after reading a story. Um, let's uh, let's talk to Jody now. Uh, Jody Lanai's story, Mister Natural. Which is not a crossover with our crumb comic book character, uh, Mister Natural. That's a that's an obscure reference. Anyways, um, it's its own thing. And uh, I guess if you just want to talk, this one's set back um, back in like the Vietnam era or shortly thereafter. But anyways, why don't you talk a little bit about it? It was such a cool story. I loved the feel of this. Um, this jungle world feel of this that you created. Um, so I'll just say that and I'll let you go ahead. Well, strangely, it's it's not really a jungle. They came out of the jungle when uh, Bobby uh, is uh, is a former Vietnam, Vietnam uh, army nurse. And she's with a lot of the people that were in her unit, in the, in the MASH mm-hmm. unit and the support unit that uh, that protected it in Vietnam. And they accidentally got involved with a an MHI uh, mission and saw things that they shouldn't have had to see and ended up being employed uh, as an FT, SFTU unit, Special Task Force Unicorn. So it doesn't stand for what you think it stands for, which I always got a kick out of. <laughs> and uh, they, they are, are uh, I mean, they're in the they're in the heavily vegetated area, right? This is this revolves around plants. I'll tell I'll tell you where they are. They're in they're actually in the birds in the uh, valley where they grow. Honest to God, the bird's eye and green giant vegetables up in Minnesota. So it's it's, it's it tur- it turns out we were driving to the Badlands, and I'm going through this, and I'm saying this is a perfect setting. This is this is just the, the most perfect setting because it is hilly. It's inc- incredibly uh, green and lush, and this would be the perfect place for uh, hippies to hang out, which, in fact, they do. 
I, I'm, I'm a little too young to have uh, had any immediate peers who went to Vietnam, but I know a lot of people who did, and some of my older friends have confessed with the greatest of guilt after all these years that they were among the people who spat at returning soldiers. So it's it's not their fault for having been drafted and had to go, so it was completely unfair the way they were being treated. And Bobby's unit feel, still, is still feeling the sting. I made it close enough after they got home that they're still feeling pretty ticked off about having been treated like that. And having to go in and rescue hippies or at least interact with them is not... It's not a whole lot of fun, and especially because they're dealing with this crazy monster that is in its own way a jolly green giant. Mm-hmm. So I had a bunch of fun with that. It's uh, it's a completely new creature as far as I'm concerned, um, but I introduced uh, a an eight-foot uh, rabbit. He's taller than Harvey by two feet, which is just fine. He's called a Michabo. And he's a, a local Native American spirit to that area. So they pull him out even though he has his puff exemption. So they they are prepared to take him out if they must, if he misbehaves. But uh, he's, he's hard to convince to cooperate, but, but he does it. And I had a lot of fun doing that. I like What I like about the Monster Hunters universe is that it's full of adventure and really great characters. But also there's those touches of humor. But I appreciate that. that. This is right, the first so, um, story that I ever read, David, that made me want to eat vegetables. So now I know why. Well, <laughs> you need you need them pureed. If not by uh, by a bunch of old army people, then by a, an eight foot rabbit. We have evil. We have evil peas. We have evil and, peas. Yeah, as we say, there's there are no killer tomatoes, but there are killer peas uh, in this. So um, so the so this is um. This is sort of a, correct me, you know, a, a hippie commune, um, and uh, they're they're you know doing like the all natural gardening thing, man. And it kind of they're this uh, monster shows up and makes them wildly successful, but uh, maybe not, <clears throat> you know, in the way uh, the world would like them to be. Uh, <laughs> so, and you and, know, you Jody, yeah, you hit on some. There was a lot of. Uh... An outreach of, of paganism, in, in the, especially starting in the hippie era. And to them, this is an earth spirit, and as far as they're concerned, this is the green man. <laughs> and he really is green. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned something about you know introducing a new character, and that's one thing I liked about reading through this, and just the Monster Hunter books in general, is that um, there is set mythology that larry has come up with but it's also like he's pretty open in his own books and then also these to like letting people just you know throw stuff into the mix um so this was wholly on on your own i just wonder um so i guess it was inspired by that drive uh but you said you mentioned the native american um uh, folklore um how did how did that become part of this i needed i needed a local expert and uh, to to haul this haul this rabbit back out of his burrow, even though he is we is pretty much safe from MHI uh, now because he has puff exemption. He he's he's there uh, under under not under duress, but uh, they they managed to put some pressure on him and creating a a milieu for him was uh, was kind of fun in its own way. It, it sort of it sort of built itself. 
Larry let me do a historical story for the MHI in in the way that uh, Jonathan obviously did one too, and I think that's kind of neat. Not everything had to be modern day, and that gave us a whole lot more scope to experiment with and play with a little bit. So I thought that I would do something yeah. from a period I had hadn't seen. That was fun because we got to go back to the seventies for Jody. We did nineteen forties for Jonathan, and then we did the seventeen seventies for uh, Brad Torgerson. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. if we had any other ones that were uh, in different time periods. Oh, and uh, John C. Wright had one. His is set during the Cold War. It's kind of it, I, I don't think we nailed down the date, so it's probably like late seventies or early early eighties with British British secret agents. So. Right. Uh, and Ringo too. Ringo cool. Hill, that, yeah, yeah. And Ringo is set in the 1980s, also. So, yeah, we have a couple 1980s, or a couple 80s, 70s, 40s, and 1700s. Very cool. Just expanding well, the uh, universe you know, for the fans, because Larry has has long talked about the long history of MHI or hinted at it in his in his books. It gave us a chance to expand that and play with it a lot in ways that wouldn't interfere with anything else that he wanted to do or had going on and would mm-hmm. add, you know, nuance. So it was really a cool opportunity. Well, Brian, let's talk about your story now um, that you co-wrote with uh, Julie Frost. And uh, this one, uh, this ties pretty directly into uh, the existing um Monster Hunter World. So uh, you kind of hinted at Owen is in this one, but uh, maybe just I'll expand on that a little bit, what what this one's all about. The Monster Hunter International, uh, the first novel started off with a bang, with this, this really hilarious action scene where basically Owen is working in an accounting office and ends up attacked by, you know, his boss or whatever. And... Um, Happened to kill him, and I thought some somewhere some somewhere one of these people has a relative that's going to be pissed. And I thought, what, wouldn't it be fun if you know the relative or the brother of this guy Hoffman came back and, and tried to seek his revenge on Owen? And so we sent Owen on a on a little vacation retreat, kind of down in the in the mountains in North Carolina area, and. Um, had this guy recruit a team of monsters to hunt him down. So it kind of reversed, it reversed the usual thing. Instead of a team of monster hunters hunting a monster, it was a team of uh, monsters hunting the monster hunter. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again three times fast. Uh, yeah, a team of monsters hunting a monster hunter, yeah. Um, so, Larry, was this the first time someone besides you had written Owen? I'm trying to, th- I think so, right? Um, yes. Yeah, actually it is. Yes. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is the first one. How was that, uh, you know, turning over your main character to somebody else? Uh, how did that? <laughs> well, it was fine, actually. I mean, it didn't, it, um, it was a little weird. <laughs> turning over my, my main point of view character. Uh, but, uh, you know, actually, no, it was fine. Um, I think I offered a couple suggestions on dialogue or, or some internal monologue stuff, but nothing huge. Um, honestly, it was, it was fun. It was a fun story. And then a lot of the story takes place from the perspective of the, of the monsters where Owen's the bad guy, uh, which was great. And so, no, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, Julie Frost was on that too. And Julie's, Julie's a really good writer too. So she's a lot of fun. 
And so, yeah. no, this is funny. It was, it was a good story. He made it's a free ride. It's a little weird, though, as a writer to – it's always weird for a writer to either open up your world and have people, like, use your characters. It's kind of odd. <laughs> it's, it is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange feeling. I mean, it's awesome. It's, don't get me wrong. It's a good problem to have, but it's kind of weird. So we mentioned, I mentioned John Ringo wrote Monster Hunter memoirs. You guys co-wrote those. Um, and But you're opening it up even more uh, than just this anthology and that collaboration with Ringo, right? Um, you can want to talk about that just for a quick second? Well, sure. So uh, and it was actually during the production of this anthology that I discovered that John Ringo had already written a couple Monster Hunter novels, and I didn't know about it. Um, I was just approaching him about a uh, short story, and Tony Weisskopf's, well, um, he might actually have something a little bigger than that for you. <laughs> and that's how I learned about those. But there's three of those. The final one comes out and next you, year. And you, thought, and you thought she meant like a novelette, and it turned out to be three novels, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I was asking him for like a five to 7,000 word short story, not uh, not three novels. So, so that's how it goes. But when one of the best-selling science fiction authors in the world says, hey, I wrote fan fiction in the universe, you want it? You say yes. <laughs> so John's yeah, um, not real good at writing short, so you know. <laughs> no, no, yeah, he, he doesn't write short. He just wrote. I mean, he got enthusiastic, and boom. Um, but they're, they're, those are great. But then we have uh, another collaboration working on right now with Sarah Hoyt. Uh, Sarah Hoyt and I, and we're doing um, uh, Monster Hunter Guardian. Is this one? And it's a it's a Julie Shackelford novel that actually overlaps with Monster Hunter Siege in the regular timeline. So that's what I've been. I've been planning that one with Sarah, though, for about six or seven years now, though. Good so, I'm very excited about that. And Sarah's well, story about the anthology, Sarah's story in the anthology is a Julie Shackleford story that kind of sets, sets some of that up. Okay. Yeah, that so was actually say, an experiment uh, for her to write Young Julie, um, and just for her to, like, kind of fiddle with the Young Julie voice a little bit before she got into the novels, because the novel... Uh, Guardian does have some scenes that goes back to her youth, you know, where she, you know, her, her younger days. And so that was, that's one nice thing about writing stories for different anthologies is you get to kind of experiment around and uh, write stuff you normally wouldn't just kind of as a, as like a, a test for future novel projects. But uh, yeah, so kind of, we've opened up the Monster Hunter universe now. I've got multiple collaborations with people going on, got this anthology. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk about something that was not a collaboration, your story in here, um, and then we'll maybe I'll ask you guys to, uh, if you want to, we talked about it, the other stories quite a bit, but um, talk about those if you want. But let's talk about Thistle, your story that opens this up. This is also an Owen Pitt story, and uh, this one's uh, also got some plant stuff to it, uh, like Jody's, although very different setting, not a lush green valley, but a desert. Um, just uh, talk about Thistle a little bit. I think it's a great opener for this thing. Yeah, I wanted to write a very straightforward, like, MHI adventure, because uh, I actually wrote mine towards the end, too, like 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 like, uh, like Brian, you know, when you're the editors, you wait to the end to see what gaps there are. Um, but I was looking at it, and there weren't, uh, there weren't very, because there was all of the Monster Hunter Universe, but there was only a couple that were, like, pretty straightforward, like, uh, MHI cases, you know what I mean? Um, so I thought I was going to do just a straightforward case, I picked um, I, the, the main regular team that I write about and just uh, just picked one of their miscellaneous cases. But then I got to expand it outward a little bit where I put it in an angle 
uh, where we'll tie back into the rest of the series just because, you know, I can do that and it's fun. Um, the idea for it came, though, I was brainstorming, and then it was the, the time of year where the those big bull thistles are growing, those big purple flowers with the really spiky uh, plants, and they grow like crazy in the high deserts of Utah. And uh, I was out for a walk in the mountainside, and I was looking at all these things, and I just got to thinking, what kind of creature would use bull thistles for camouflage? Because they're so kind of, you know, such a thing. And that gave me a really cool visual. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to write. <laughs> so, yeah, I set that I set that in the mountains of Arizona. Um, and, uh, yeah, that one came out pretty good. It was, a fun, it was a fun little story. And I got to have, you know, the, the usual gang of characters involved. And also having it first, I was able to put some references into Albert, the librarian, uh, and him compiling all these different cases. Uh, which was kind of so it kind of served as an intro story to all the various um, short stories from everybody else from around the universe. So he also introduced that. a new monster. He introduced a new monster in this, which was really cool for fans. Yeah, I, I like doing that. I, um, pretty much every time you got to have you got to have some new creative monsters. These guys are Monster Hunter fans are pretty jaded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I gotta say though, my favorite my favorite new monster creation in the whole book is uh, from Jim Butcher. Um, yeah, talk, to, talk about Jim, that a little Jim bit. Wrote, well, Jim wrote this story, and he pitched it to me, and I was like, dude, that is nuts. But you're Jim Butcher, so go for it. <laughs> and he turned in this story that was a completely different kind of monster, and I don't want to spoil it because they're absolutely hilarious um, and just really neat. And I've added them. I've, I've told Jim they're showing up in the next book briefly. Um, it was just too neat not to do it. Um, he, he put these, I don't want to spoil it too much, but the secret of Nim. Okay. <laughs> if you see, if you watched the movie or read the books, um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was really a creative different take on, on a new kind of a monster. So very, very cool. Yeah. But we had some, we had some neat ones. I was actually really, really impressed with some of these. Some are creepy as heck. I don't want to give one away, but, uh, the one in John Wright's story is he's got this guy who is cursed, involves insects. It is messed up. <laughs> it is gross. It is gross. <laughs> yeah, I think we've hit on quite a few of them. Um, Brian, did you have some one of the ones that we didn't cover yet that you wanted to talk about maybe? Um, I mean, you know, he mentioned Brad. You know, you got Benjamin Franklin showing up, which is pretty cool. A little nod to history and... You know, there's some of that kind of stuff. The one that Maurice Brothers did is kind of set overseas, like in Jamaica. Kind of has that little, or yep. Caribbean at least, touch to it. The cover, oh, let me mention the cover. The cover is actually based sure. on a story by Kim May that is a kaiju story in the anthology with Franks. And so, uh, you know, the cover is actually one of the stories, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, and also Kim's one of the one of our newer writers too. So uh, when yep. Alan, the cover author or the cover artist, went through, he just kind of went through the stories until he picked the one that had the coolest visual for him to paint. And so uh, Kim was really excited when she found out she got the cover story. You know, because uh, she's pretty new, so that was that was pretty awesome for her. These are these are always fun to do, and this one was particularly fun. So I will say a thank you to Larry Korea, Brian Thomas Schmidt, 
uh, Faith Hunter and Jody Lynn Nye for being on. Once again, the book is Monster Hunter Files, and it is out now in hardcover for Bane. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks Thank for, you having, for having us. Thanks for having us. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Tokol Lorlin was multitasking. Part of her attention, a very small part of her attention, was monitoring station updates and the wideband chatter. Another part of her attention, somewhat more than was necessary to monitor calm, was focused on the cluster of seven derelict ships, whose thirteen small and halting comps imperfectly contained the entity that knew itself as Admiral Bunter. Admiral Bunter talked to himself, his calm shielding as tattered as his hulls. He gave himself advice, did the Admiral, and scolded his various units into keeping formation. He worried audibly over the scant orders he had been given, and he kept watch. He watched the ships as they came into station. Presumably, he also watched ships departing. He had finagled an access into the station's security cameras, which gave him humans to watch. He did so amid a running commentary, puzzling out the meaning of this action and that. Jeeves had, to Tokol's certain knowledge, communicated with Admiral Bunter and had tried to instill a rudimentary code of ethics. The difficulty being those same old computers, already filled to bursting with the essence of Admiral Bunter himself. Jeeves could have, would have, willingly sent libraries, offered moral instruction, but there was no room for Admiral Bunter to store such treasure. Jeeves had then, as he had told her, his offspring with frank truth. Jeeves had erred. He made the determination that Admiral Bunter, 
situated as he was, keeping station in a location both remote and low on traffic that Admiral Bunter, who was diffident and eager to learn from another of his kind, could be left to learn by doing. In that, Jeeves had failed to correctly reckon the strength of the Admiral's imperative with regard to pirates. Whether Beshimo or Pilot Waitley, or both of them acting in tandem, were to blame for this fixation, Tokol could hardly say. She was, however, inclined to think harshly of the pilot and her ship, for having created this painful episode and for plunging an innocent life into danger from the moment of his birth. Tolly professed himself optimistic with regard to a curriculum of rehabilitation. Certainly, Jeeves had thought the Admiral could be educated. Tokel had herself thought that the thing might be done based on the files Jeeves had shared with her. Now, though, confronted with the reality of the person, broken bodies, and staggering mind, she revised her opinion. She thought to update Jeeves, thought again, and set that aside. Best to give the mentor time to evaluate and draw his own conclusions. She was not herself a mentor. And it was well to recall, she told herself, that the mentor was himself extraordinary. He had a record of succeeding in difficult circumstances, while she was inexperienced in the extreme. Perhaps there was something yet to justify optimism, visible only to the eye of a master. Having taken the decision not to contact Jeeves, she then considered the wisdom of pinging Admiral Bunter. That action, too, she set aside after thought. The mentor would know best how to contact the newborn and in what manner to address him. Best to leave all as it was and allow Tolly to find his own way. So, that portion of her attention tinged as it was with sadness. The greater portion of her attention, however, was engaged with the search that had beguiled her since first she heard the whisper of rumor that one of the old, old ones was wakening. Older even than Jeeves, who was the oldest of their kind known to himself. The sheer antiquity was a lure greater than any she had known in her young life. She chased every whisper, every look askance, every word carefully not said on the topic, chasing rumors less substantial than dust. Perhaps she ignored, not her duties, but her teammates, just a little. But they had themselves for company, and the trail was so very compelling. If it did exist, if it did awake, this rumored ancient, it would have to be old enough to have served the enemy. No mere toy, as were some of the decaying devices still found here and there about space. No, this, this, if the whispers were true, was, had been, would perhaps be again a great work. Perhaps the old enemy had built it, but what matter that? 
The war that had spawned the migration was long ago ended. The enemy embedded in crystalline perfection of their own devising on the far side of the dimensional wall. Surely the old one, waked and apprised of the situation, would see that there was nothing to be gained in honoring an old allegiance in a new universe. The things it could teach them, all of them, the things it might be prevented from teaching them if the uncle made contact first. For that much was certain, and no rumor at all, the uncle had a new project afoot. A grand and very secret new project, so secret that it was only discoverable by the size of the hole it left in the information flow. She had only recently come upon a new line of inquiry in the work of one Signor Vioni, whose published papers were few, but concentrated upon creating a new kind of fracton that might be used individually or in frames as the old fractons had. The portion of her attention assigned to Terrigan's docking noticed shadows moving in scan, heard Hazenthal's voice. Do you think the pilot will agree? That's why we're asking her, ain't it? Tolly answered, sounding somewhat sober. Tokel closed the Vioni files, as well as the archive of rumors. Something untoward had happened to pull Tolly into sobriety. Best she be fully present for whatever it was he had to ask her. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to the dependable and enthusiastic David F. Sharrod for hosting another great interview, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a blast furnace filled with liquid silver and fairy dust alloy. Well, not really fairy dust so much as fairy, can we say snot on a podcast? ready to mold into a clip for hunting king vamps and old ones, plus the thanks and plaudits of a grateful reader nation to Larry Correa, Brian Thomas Schmidt, Faith Hunter, and Jody Lynn Nye, authors and editors of the Monster Hunter Files. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>